0: today i'm on a zoom call to you're in sydney or sydney i am yeah sydney uh, australia Australia With libby hopwood libby thanks very much for taking some of your time to talk to us um so you're a former champion apprentice you're jockey with 324 winners a tv presenter paid tipster and we'll talk about the other bits a bit later on um so you're (laughs) a very very busy lady what's your main job these days
1: Uh, My main job is I I actually work on the ground with racehorses. I have a business where I see horses um, and see them with pulse electromagnetic field therapy, which is why I'm all still in my uniform. I came rushing home and and got on the Zoom call with you. So I'm still covered in about three foot of horse dust and horse hair. But um, So I go to all the major racetracks in the city of Sydney. I go there five days a week and then I come home and I do form and then I do the OnlyFans content as well. So um, my main job uh, time-wise, possibly the horses, um, running a close second to form and actually the OnlyFans takes up a lot of that as well. Um, Income-wise, I guess it would be the horses over the span of of the years that I've been doing it, uh, but uh, it looks like OnlyFans is going to outstrip that.
0: Okay, well, we'll talk about the only the only fans a bit later on. Um, so I was interested. I sort of googled you as you do before these interviews, and I read. And please, I apologise. I apologise if that's wrong because I blame Google. But um, I read that you grew up on a camel farm, riding horses and racing camels.
1: Uh, yes, I grew up on a cattle farm, so I grew up with the with the cows. Uh, but my dad had camels of all things, and he used to race them. So every every year, we'd pack up a big semi trailer full of camels, and we'd go up north around the desert and chase the camel racing circuit. And I'd ride camels for uh, almost six months every year uh, as a kid. Pull me out of school, I'd do school by correspondence, so I'd get sent up north in the truck with a sheaf of material like this that I had to keep up with. Which I was good. I was a good student, so I kept up with it mostly until the maths. I did struggle with maths. Don't like that.
0: Now I've I've been to Australia a few times, and I must have. I have no idea. I've eaten ca- uh, camel, but I didn't realise that they race them. So what's the uh, what's the camel racing scene like? I mean, is there bookies and form and all that sort of thing?
1: absolutely? Uh, not necessarily form because the the pool of racing camels is very small. So we generally know who the best camels are anyway. Um, but there was definitely bookies on course. It's taken a dive now. The insurances have really destroyed it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a thriving circuit for a while. When there was a, a handful of trainers with all the same camels, we were lucky enough to get a champion for a few years. And then he, he fractured a sesamoid um, in his fetlock. Uh, and we retired him and he just became a, a riding camel. So um, survived that. It's not like it was just a fracture. So he was fine, but he wasn't a champion anymore. Um, but yeah it was it was pretty interesting there was one camel that was a champion for years on end his name was a eunuch um and he was an absolute nut job which was hilarious
0: did they, did they run on, on sort of horse racing tracks then that yeah it worked yeah All Right. so when you you say you built um you were brought up on a cattle farm um i imagine a cattle farm in australia is slightly bigger than a cattle farm in uh in the uk so how, how big a sort of place are we looking at
1: uh, no, we were only quite small. Um, I guess we had we had a bit over 100 acres um, and ran, I don't even know how many cows on that, but I think we had like 150 acres spread across two properties. But where we were, so far as the size of farms, we were one of the small guys. There was massive properties out there. And then, of course, with the camels, when we got north, we were spending a lot of our time on stations, which are just thousands of kilometres. So um, we were small fryers. We had uh, a few Herefords that we breed and sell every year.
0: And where was the, Where did the horse racing come into it? Was was there any horse racing?
1: Uh, no, but I I grew up riding horses, so I was a, I was obviously a, a farm kid and a country kid. Um, I grew up riding the horses, and my first job, uh, I needed money to go to university, and I saw a job offering for um ground stuff, and I figured why not? I can handle a horse, so I went in there. Horses were all I knew. Um, I actually got the job because I put on my resume that I could ride camels. And his theory was, if I could ride a camel, I could ride a horse. So it should be fine. Um, he was down a track rider one day. So I jumped on board to help him out and he offered me an apprenticeship. I came out at the end of that with the decision to go to university, uh, cause this was in my gap year. I could go to university and come out at the end of four years with a debt, looking for a job, or I could do an apprenticeship and come out with money and a career. So I decided to ride horses.
0: So you'd already qualified to go to university. That
1: yes, I was going to study archaeology and forensic sciences.
0: Okay, so is that that would still be open to you if you ever wanted to do it again? Uh, Take it up.
1: I I don't know. It's it's not as of interest to me as it once was, which is interesting because when you're young, you're gung ho and you're going to go to university and this is going to be your career. And um, twenty years down the track, and I was like, eh like history and archaeology still deeply fascinates me but i don't think enough to to forge a
0: career in it right so when you when you were growing up as a young girl on a cattle farm in the country australia i mean how isolated is it i mean is it like one of the you sort of think of skippy and leaving a helicopter to get everywhere and that sort of thing i mean are you sort of on your own a lot
1: There are drop bears. No, we're not that isolated where I was. Um, We were in a a nice little rural community in Victoria, um, small town, uh, but where we used to go up north of the camels, that was proper isolation. Uh, We'd stay on a place called Coward Springs, which was this tiny little, uh, essentially an oasis. So there was a hot spring there and there's some natural water sources there. And outside of that, it was thousands of kilometres of just gibber flat and desert. So that is... As isolated as it comes, your shopping there is a road train or will go through every month or so and drop off a, sh- uh, a heap of supplies. And uh, if you get injured, as people did do, you need the Royal Flying Doctor in. So I've lived on both ends of the spectrum, country all the way around, but either extremely rural or just on the farm in Victoria.
0: That was, um, I mean, your dad having racing camels in Victoria, the logistics were a little bit, you know, wouldn't have been better off moving up to uh, to Northern Territories or something like that. What was that? Why did he sort of uh, do it down there?
1: Well, the the camel racing was all over the place. There was camel racing in South Australia, New South Wales, um, Northern Territory, uh, and um, what was the other state? Queensland. So they were the main circuits. The Northern Territory, we actually didn't have much in the way of camel racing because they did have it there, but it was more a tourist trap. And the the real trainers, uh, weren't actually allowed to participate in those races. So it was a bit of a scandal when I was a kid, um, but where we were on our farm my dad had that farm forever and the camels sort of grew out of that so the cows would be all right they'd be looked after for six months every year we had a vet friend that lived up the road and they'd drop in and check the cattle while we were up north with the camels but we'd we'd go do that when it was cold which is quite nice the camels don't like the cold so we'd load them up take them up north get into the sun and then come back
0: okay tell t- tell us a bit more about you at the first this when you went into be uh, where well, you started this working in the yard to just get a few quids and pay for your books and stuff um, and you took a chance when somebody, somebody needed a rider, that the trainer needed a rider. So tell us how quickly things moved on from there.
1: Uh, they progressed pretty quickly because I, I love riding horses and I was lucky enough that I picked it up reasonably quickly. So I always had the people that employed me always had confidence in my ability. So it was never a question of arming and ahhing about whether this is the right decision or not. Uh, worked hard, Spent my time down in that country stable with a very, very astute country trainer. He taught me a hell of a lot. And then when I wanted to progress, I moved up to Adelaide and that started my my city riding career.
0: Okay, what what's... You say taught you a hell of a lot. What sort of things did he teach you? What he aspects was of the game? He was horseman.
1: So he wasn't necessarily a jockey. Uh, well, he was never a jockey. Never rode horses like that, but an excellent horseman. He himself used to be a, a rough rider back in the day. He'd go around a almost similar to the camel racing circuit. So when we're on the camels uh, on the circuit, there was this big, big top tent that used to travel around and they'd have boxes in there as the entertainment. And one night of the, ca- the, the carnival, the boxes would all get up the top and it was called Fred Brophy's Boxing Tent. And they'd come out and they'd MC and they'd get spectators to come in and challenge the boxes. And that was the entertainment for the night. So uh, pretty rough, as you can imagine. But the the trainer that I started my apprenticeship with, he used to actually be a Fred Brophy boxer. So he used to travel around that circuit, was a boxer, was an excellent horse rider, excellent trainer, one of the best horsemen I know, but never rode a racehorse as such. And when he did try to teach me how to use the whip, that was hilarious. He was wrong in that instance, but it's not many times he's wrong.
0: All right, so when you got that opportunity to to take over from somebody that can do it, had you been pestering, like, you know, I can ride and all that sort of thing, or you like, know, were they surprised that they'd had you for this long and they, they uh, hadn't got you up on the horse properly?
1: I uh, know. I, uh yeah, I don't think I was there for very long. I was on the ground. I was confident with horses. Uh, I was riding horses around the, his setup was he had a property that had a big track of land around it. And then the horses would work around there the majority of their time. And then they'd go into the track twice a week. Uh, so I was already riding the horses. So he knew I was a competent rider, but it was just on the track where he offered me the job and, decided to give it a go
0: okay so the next thing I've noted down: you, you became champion apprentice so how big a time scale are we talking between that moment and you being the champion apprentice uh
1: it was probably half so you, you start your career you obviously start off slowly and then you you build on from there but I was champion apprentice the last two years that I rode as an apprentice so it was only a four-year apprenticeship I outrode my claim so I came out a little bit early as well so half or a little bit less than
0: half um, now this is probably going to sound a silly question because you you were a successful jockey but how difficult you often hear about apprentices over here that their flavour of the month they win everything and then they find it extremely difficult when they go professional so how did you um, how did you find that transition?
1: It was hard as well I was hard because I was a boom apprentice um, and did really really well and then I Got a little bit caught up, in fact, in winning the Metropolitan Premiership as an apprentice because I hadn't been done before. I was out in front. I got tunnel vision and I got a little bit weird about it. And my boss ended up pulling me off a few horses to sort of get me to pull my head in and teach me a lesson, which frankly, I still think it still hurts me because I only went down by three in the end and I would have been the first apprentice to do it. The only one to do it since then has been Jamie Carr. So, um, yeah, I sort of. Lost my way a little bit on that purely through tunnel vision and wanting to be a champion. Um, and then it slowed down a little bit. Things sort of came off the rails a bit slowed down. I outrode my claim. So I came out uh, a senior when I didn't really have a great deal of momentum behind me. But then I, I started going out to not necessarily Adelaide, but the surrounding tracks to ride track work. And I kicked up again and I started getting lots of winners again. It was kicking off again. And then uh, it all came crashing down.
0: Which we'll talk about in the next part. Yeah. Okay, Libby, that's interesting. This will take you back to the last thing you said. When you said you got a bit weird, I mean did you did you get a bit big for your boots or what what was the what was the problem there? Because surely if you're being really enthusiastic.
1: Not big for my boots, just absolute tunnel vision, and everything I was was about winning that championship, and just probably a little bit neurotic about it. I'm sure I was insufferable, but uh at the time, I just wanted to be the best and and win that apprenticeship or win the win the premiership rather
0: you know you've got some uh, you've got some really good lady jockeys in Australia, but from the outside, it still seems quite a sort of roughy toughy macho sort of place um How were you welcomed by? you know the other jockeys even even the lady jockeys when you sort of came onto the circuit
1: it actually it was pretty good for me because I was lucky enough to be riding in South Australia and South Australia has a really strong history of very strong female riders um, and female riders that didn't take any shit so uh, me coming along in that iteration was what they had already seen before so there was definitely uh, some moments where you're banging your head against the wall and you you have to work harder for sure there's no belittling the fact that it is a male-dominated industry it is a male-dominated sport but I was lucky that in South Australia most of them are very open-minded and welcoming to female riders if you can ride the horse you can ride the horse
0: and is that something that sort of changed for the better over the years since you yes. started, you know can you see a difference since you started even
1: it definitely improves um, and even just little things throughout my career. Like there was one particular trainer in South Australia who was notorious for using girls and track work because he loved how the girls would handle the horses in track work but and refused to put them on race day. Absolutely refused. I don't know why his dad put him on race day. He just decided that that was going to be his little hill to die on. Um, but then he started offering Jamie car rides when she was over in Melbourne and everyone in Adelaide was like, oh, now you've caught up. And he's like, well, she's the best rider in in the country. I was like, well, yes, that was our point. Like having ovaries doesn't negate the fact that whether you're a good rider or not, and you've just had this little hill to die on for your whole life. And now all of a sudden you're you're backing down and you're trying to do it peacefully. And everyone in Adelaide was like, no, no.
0: Tell us a bit. I mean, I know this is going to be obvious to anybody watching in Australia, but we're based in the UK, so... It's a massive country, Australia. So how does it work when you're a professional jockey? Do you have like an area that you ride in or, you know, how does it work?
1: Uh, So you ride in your state and you ride in an area in your state and you might venture out from that a little bit and you might fly to other meetings or tracks for a particular type of purpose. Uh, But you, you generally, you base yourself out of an area because as you said, Australia is just too big. You're not covering, um, any scope of being able to cover the country at
0: all as one person. So how many race courses, different race courses, would you ride at, at in, as part of your uh, your sort of area?
1: So when I was riding in Adelaide, there's um, there's like a circuit that you do. So you've got the midweeks and the weekends. The weekends were always in the city. there were city class meetings, unless there was a showcase meeting out in the country somewhere. And then you would have your provincial, which are your outlying suburbs of um, the city track. And they get a little bit further out, but they come under the provincial banner. And then even further from that, and you're hitting about a four-hour driving radius, four to five hours, you get country. um, And then you start getting some real country and non-tabs in amongst that as well. And there's a smattering of tracks in amongst that layouts that that have have a different sort of ranking on them. But it's generally city in the middle, move out a few suburbs, provincial, and then out further to about a four-hour radius and you get country, track. Although you know,
0: the country, yeah. So it was like sort of one big travelling circus for you seeing everybody every day. So would you all pool rides, Were you jockeys, that sort of thing? Good, yeah,
1: absolutely. And we would, there's quite a few races that we would go to where the stewards and the jockeys would charter a small bush plane to get us there because it was just not feasible to drive all the way and then drive home. But I think the, the furthest we'd probably travel was four to five hours. So you get up early track work in the morning, probably wasting all day, drive to the races four or five hours, ride your horses, drive home four or five hours, get up in the morning and rinse and repeat. So um, there's tracks that are just too far to do that. Port Lincoln, for example, it's too far to drive to Port Lincoln. So there's always a chartered flight over to Port Lincoln and then back again.
0: And a lot of jockeys over here would would still ride out for their trainers or whatever in the morning. Was there any time for oh, yeah. that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, that's it's expected. You don't you don't ride the track work. You don't get the rides.
0: Okay, so if I once again, I'm going to blame Google if this is wrong. Uh three hundred twenty three hundred twenty four wins as a jockey, and over five million dollars in prize money was your career total.
1: Well, you're telling me stats that I don't know because I actually, I didn't like keeping a track of my winners because I all I felt. We all have those weird superstitions, but I felt that paying attention to your last winner was bad luck and would discourage the next winner. So people would always ask me, especially when the winners started racking up. So, how many of you ridden now? I was like, la 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 la, I don't want to know.
0: Okay. So, another, another stat that I found was eight percent strike rate, which is pretty high.
1: Yeah. Um, that was probably about my average. I, I, I had periods where I was much higher than that. So, um, like I said, as an apprentice, I was a bit of an a boom apprentice. Had a great strike rate, and then really dropped out, um, and was just starting to fight my way back up the ranks again.
0: Say a boom apprentice, you mean? What, is that just a terminology like, so of somebody that's flying,
1: like lots of rides was flying. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and something else I read is that um, you're a Frankie Tatori to fan. Is that his riding style, or just him, or what? What's the story it's there?
1: Him showmanship he's like he was kind of like the quintessential social media jockey before there was even social media like the way he's marketed himself is amazing um i think yeah uh, he's australian riding leads a little bit to be desired but as a showman and as an athlete i adore him
0: okay so his australian riding leads a little bit to be desired so, so where, where like, can he where, where can he brush up? up where can he where can he brush up on his uh, technique here
1: yeah, he still he just um well he still hasn't he still has won the cup over here. He comes over here all the time. He's a champion rider, but I don't know if we I know from my riding in Singapore that we ride much tighter than other riders. I don't know. I think the year that i hope I'm not getting this wrong because I do confuse facts in my brain sometimes. But the year that Michelle won at the Melbourne Cup, I'm pretty sure if you go back and watch that replay, Frankie uh went to just allowed her to pocket him. And you could see the thought logic that he was going to allow her to pocket him because he could just push her out of the way, right? I'm not sure that it was because she was riding the horse that was a million to one or whether it was a girl, I don't know. But he allowed her to pocket him. And then when it started to roll into it, he just went to pop off thinking it'd be easy and she just shut the door and smashed him back and it was hilarious. Do
0: you, do you think that the, uh, the, the foreign riders are up against it in races like the Melbourne Cup? The the jockey's going to be a little bit more, you know, showing who's boss in the race.
1: Well, the jockeys show everybody who's boss. Like if if Michelle had a had bloody I don't know Huey Bowman or Craig Newitt down to her inside, she wasn't going to let them the hell out either. But it was just funny that it was just underestimated a little bit because they might not have allowed themselves to be quite pocketed that well.
0: I think I think he's going to try and do it this year and his his farewell year is going to be over for the for the Melbourne Cup. Maybe you it could should give be, a few... he should
1: be trying to do it every year he comes over, right?
0: <laughs> right, so we, sadly, that talking about, your, um, talking about your riding career has to end with tragedy at Murray Bridge, terrible uh, fall where one of your friends, uh, Caitlin Forrest fell and died, and you were brought down and suffered career ending injuries. Um, obviously, that was you know, sort of a, a terrible sort of. Thing. what what do you, do you remember much about it? Is it something you try to block um, out now?
1: well i I had my career ending injury was a traumatic brain injury, so I actually have no recollection of anything around that race. Um, I'm missing weeks around that point. Um, but yes, it's not something it's obviously not a pleasant memory um and then then you have your road to recovery as well and then you're constantly dealing with the well survivor's guilt but then also the thought that when you're a jockey you're so wrapped up in being a jockey you can't really see your way out of it and I was fighting so hard to get back to writing and felt like the worst person in the world to be fighting to get back to what I knew because Caitlin would have loved the opportunity so on one hand you're fighting to get back to some semblance of normalcy and then on the other you hate yourself for trying to do that so it's it's been a uh it's been a hell of a journey but I'm, uh, I'm the lucky one.
0: Okay, and all, I mean that was a terrible week for Australian racing because uh, Carly May Pye also died that week. Um, uh,
1: she died the night before.
0: Night before. Uh, I mean, did did it ever sort of did you ever think, nah, this is you know this is too much? Uh,
1: Every jockey has that thought at one point. Carly passed away, and there was a comment. Obviously, everyone's was like, was shook. And it was horrible and then the next day you you go to work like those riders after murray bridge so after our fall um caitlin was airlifted i was ambulanced out those riders finished riding that day um and it was it was expected of course nobody knew how serious things were it was apparently I, i've been told that it was reported on track that caitlin was conscious and communicating so nobody had a clue at how catastrophic things actually were but it's significant four four horses come out a helicopter's come in as far as i'm concerned whenever there's an airlift things are not great um and it was ex- they just they just got on with it and they rode on so it was like again you have this this dichotomy of like I was saying earlier, trying to get back to writing and I'm feeling like shit about trying to get back to writing. There's a dichotomy in me for that about the disrespect and how dare they push through that moment, but then also the absolute respect that they could pick themselves up and keep going.
0: And ultimately the decision was made for you that your days in the saddle were over. I imagine that was a blow. How, how big a blow was it?
1: Uh, horrible it was like it was like I said everybody everything that you are as a writer is who you are it's your sense of self it's your sense of identity it's not just job so when that was taken off me if I had a walked away of my own accord it's different but to have doctors and stewards tell you we're never going to license you to write again um it's was devastating um but I do credit my very country upbringing and my very school of hard knocks dad. That was just you get on and you get on with shit. And I um, tried to keep finding projects to keep moving forward and tried to, to, to find a way forward. But I was always future-minded as a writer as well. I was always putting things out there and potentially working in media whilst I was writing. Um, so I think you need to have something to look forward to or at least try to work towards even if you can't look forward to it at that point, which i tried to do uh
0: this is something that i didn't mention in the the questions before but something you posted up i think it was yesterday on social media it's quite a downbeat post for you um sort of like you're not quite fulfilled in in the world of racing what you're doing is that is that was that just something in the moment that you wanted to get out there or
1: no well it's something that i've been like you see it every day it's the old social media uh comparing yourself to things. So I would love to still be working in racing broadcast. And it was, it was again, devastating when I was made redundant. I did have an inkling it was coming because I was always butting heads with my supervisor. Um, so I did have an inkling that it was going to be there. So I wasn't, I definitely wasn't blindsided by the decision, but it was still, again, not nice to have that decision taken off you. Um, I felt and the feedback I always got was I was reasonable in in my job in media and I was an all-round host. At, what, at that point, there was no all-round host. Like the people sort of seem to have their um, their niche areas. And I certainly had my niche area on Formline and I was made redundant when that show was moved out to the form people on track, which does make sense because they see the horses day in, day out and can physically see them instead of me just in the studio. Um, but I could, I've definitely done other jobs. So it did feel a little bit like I was headhunted um but yeah i haven't been great at playing political games and i did used to clash
0: with my supervisor a little bit okay we'll, again we'll, t- we'll, we'll talk about your post writing career in a minute this this finally on, on a positive note your highlight if you could bottle one moment in your in your writing career that you you know what would it be?
1: that's a good one It is, and it's not to one singular moment. It's the feeling you get from a horse when you know you've got a lap full of horse underneath you and you are confident and you just peel out and they just work through their gears. I would give anything to just sit on a horse and just let it take me through its gears again. A good horse. They're just, uh, the power is incredible. I have so much respect for them.
0: Just and amazing. Is, um... So is your condition, you know, know, medical situation that you're not even allowed to ride a horse at all? Uh,
1: No, I'm allowed to ride a horse. I wouldn't be allowed to ride a horse on track. I did get back to track work, but I was only allowed to trot a horse um, every third day and I was only allowed to ride three in the morning. Um, And I was like, well, what's the point? I'm not going to be a trot rider for the rest of my life, but I do have my own horse uh, and I rode him. I invented him a little bit and he is very fat and very slow. So it's definitely not the same feeling. (laughs)
0: okay Libby so you sadly had to retire from the saddle but then Sky TV came calling was that the next was that in the right chronological order uh
1: yes there was a few bits and pieces in between there I'd done quite a bit of a mode like um speaking public address and public speaking whilst I was riding. um After the fall, I started working for the South Australian Sports Show. Um, Went in there for an interview and they offered me a role as their uh, sport presenter. So I started doing that and got a handle of how to prepare for um, a shift on camera. And I was doing all my own research across all sports. So it wasn't just the horse racing, which I'm obviously very familiar and comfortable with. But the hardest part of that job actually was learning how to pronounce ridiculous soccer player names. So... That was that was the tricky part of that. Then I started working for a company called G1X, and they would fly me out to Melbourne to sit on their show uh, once a week. And that was great. I got to work with some really great guys there. Uh, they taught me a hell of a lot as well. And then I got a call from Sky Racing. And that was it was honestly a dream come true at the time. I was ecstatic.
0: And how, how long did that last?
1: Um, I think nearly five years. I was so there for we- a while.
0: Um, And I've also got jockey's manager. Is that?
1: So I, oh yeah, I also managed um, a friend of mine in South Australia, um, helped her out for a bit when I, in between, obviously after race riding and I was at home still recovering, but I wanted something to do. So I I managed a friend of mine uh, and I also managed a Freedman Brothers racing stable here in um,
0: Sydney for a little while as well. Okay, thank you. Right, so just as a bit of a, a bit more info here. The health of Australia, of horse racing in Australia, I and mean, there's obviously a lot of tracks. When I was last there, it was about 10 years ago, but, you know, people still in the betting in the pubs and things like that. So how is it at the moment?
1: Tricky question, because there's always a conjecture that it's uh, struggling, especially in South Australia, in my hometown. I feel like people have been saying South Australian racing is in trouble for at least 15 years, but it just seems to keep going. My personal opinion is that I am concerned for the welfare of racing and the welfare of um, the perception of racing in the, in the larger community. I feel like racing itself has really sat on its hands for a long time because we raced through the great depression. Racing seems to be the one thing that keeps things going and keeps, keeps an industry. The industry just keeps rolling, but Times are changing significantly, especially with social media and the mobilisation of younger generations. If you walk down the track, if you walk down the street now and if you find a random person and ask them what they think of the Melbourne Cup, their first response is always going to be, it's cruel and the horses just get whipped because that is the perception in the media. Uh, It's perception within the community and racing, in my opinion, doesn't do enough to battle that. It's just a matter of... um, really education and because racing we see all these claims come out about all the deaths all the cruelty all the craziness and because it's so ludicrous and so full of bullshit we laugh it off because we know it's not true but the general public don't and they take that on board humans have a a natural negativity bias anyway and they just hang on to these things and they don't we're not doing enough to combat it because we feel like it's ludicrous
0: yeah, so I've got quite a few Australian friends and I try and ignore their nut to the cup posts in November. Yeah. yeah.
1: Why are we ignoring it? Why aren't we fighting it head on? What... <clears throat> this is a bugbear of mine at Sky's who I was pushing to get human interest and horse interest stories out and not it just be because Sky's obviously a wagering channel, so it's 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 wagering and it's pushing through. So they couldn't find a position to put these sorts of shows. But we need shows with the people, with the horses, and with the love of the horses because How are you supposed to know anything different? Because all we're doing is pumping out bets and pumping out winners. We're not showing the love behind it that creates it. Like the average person in the industry is not there because of the wage. The wage is often terrible. You can just stay home, get paid by the government and play PlayStation all day. You don't have to get up early. You don't have to have drug tests. You don't have to get breathos. You're going to have a social life that expands outside of the racing industry and you're probably going to get paid more. We're doing it for... love of the horse and it's just not resonating with people outside of the industry
0: you can tell you tell you're passionate about that definitely and it's a similar similar thing over here so now you're a one of your angles is you're a paid tipster yeah um what was your was your the yard that you work for in a gambling yard was is is that always been important in the back of your mind that people are backing these horses and that sort of thing
1: um Yes and no, uh, especially as a rider as well. You, you're you always acutely aware that there's so many people that are riding on this one performance, this one horse. So it's the owners that have paid up until that point. It's the trainers that have gotten up every day of the week. It's the track rider that adores the horse. It's And then it's the people that put their hard-earned money on it. And it's all reliant on this one performance that arguably or not, mostly is heavily influenced by luck. So if you can take a little bit of the luck out of it and try to study the form, which is what I'm trying to do as a tipster now and, and help people that are, are putting like our hard-earned bunny on these horses, then I I feel like I sh- I should be doing that, especially when you're coming from uh, an angle as an ex-rider. If I'm watching something on TV and I'm watching a race, I am I might be able to pick up on things that other people can't because they've never ridden a horse. So they can't see that it was hanging or they can't see that it looked a little bit scratchy in the yard or things like that.
0: But would you, when you were a jockey, would you study the form of your horse before you rode it? So you knew it better?
1: No, I was pretty naughty. Uh, also in South Australia, the pool of horses is very small. So we get to know the horses. So when you've been riding there a while, you get to a point where you don't really need to do the form. You know them, um, you know, this horse likes to lead and you get to learn importantly, uh, jockey patterns. So, you know, that that rider's going to get itchy feet at the 600 meters and take off. And if your horse needs a little bit of time to warm into the race, just get on the back and cart up. So it's learning rider patterns and it's learning, you do learn the horses. So the form is, uh, probably isn't as important in small small racing communities as it is in larger
0: ones what's your um your angle is it all your form study did you get your card marked a bit or is it a mixture of the two a mixture of the two okay so you have you have um so do you have any help with your any particular help with your picks any sort of anybody in the background some sort of form expert that uh, that sort of gives you a bell every morning and
1: I feel like you get help from the track riders and from like, so for people on the ground. So I'm on in it, uh, the stables every day of the week. So I definitely, I feel like I get help because I hear the whispers and I hear what people are saying about horses, but you also have to balance that too, because there's like that strapper thinks his horse is going to win every time it goes out. So you you do need to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt and go back and do the form
0: so i was looking on your website and you've got you have like is it punter of the week or punter of the month or something where somebody you know one of your clients sort of comes on you've got a photograph with them or whatever they ask you questions and stuff i mean see obviously uh,
1: i don't have that that was an interview of mine but that is a brilliant idea and if you don't mind i'm gonna steal it
0: okay <laughs> so that's my my sloppy research now um so how are the bookmakers at taking bets from your winning clients
1: I actually don't have a whole lot to do with how much my clients are putting on. I feel like I, I try to keep a little bit of distance with that because responsible gambling and I'm, I'm pushing tips rather than their bets. Um, I When all my tips go out, they go in, in betting units so that punter can designate what their unit is. So one punter's unit might be $100. The other punter's unit might be $10,000 and one guy might be 10 bucks. So I, I have had a little bit of feedback that some people have struggled to get bets on on occasion. Uh, but I do think that's across the board. It doesn't matter where you're going from. But it does appear that we are moving markets because I'll put out a tip um, and they do get crunched a little bit. So that's that's kind of cool.
0: That, that's where I was coming from because we have, pro- at the moment, the UK is in a terrible state with uh, the new gambling regulation coming out. And, uh, you know, a lot of successful punters. If somebody followed your tips and they were winning, they wouldn't be able to get, you know, yeah. pennies on. Um, but they, everybody says, "Oh, but in Australia, you can back a horse to win. They've got to lay you to win a certain amount of money." So, I was just wondering how much feedback you get from from your punters, sort of, especially the bigger ones, saying that it's great that you're putting these winners up, but I can't actually back them anymore. Is that?
1: You. Um, there's also a couple of bookies that seem to be taking me on. So, like, they might not even be paying any attention to what I'm tipping, which is the most likely. Uh, comments like they've probably got no idea what I'm doing but they seem to and I only know this because a few of my um, supporters have got back to me and it's like oh they're taking you on again and then and this and again and that so either that or I'm picking terrible horses and they've got the right market but often we're winning those ones so they're either taking me on or they don't know what I'm doing and they just think the horse is below what I think it can perform at
0: how is the this is, once again in the UK there seems to be a real campaign to make gambling all of a sudden next to be you know being a drug dealer or something so how does it look that in australia
1: there is a push for that as well um they're just we're, we're very good with responsible gambling messages um there's a lot of laws around responsible gambling messages even when i was working at sky things like Uh, You couldn't refer to alcohol because sky is a a tipping channel. So you can't combine the two. So there's, there's definitely lots of laws around, Um, but yes, I think horse racing and gambling is definitely in the gun. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about this, just this shift in consciousness and the shift in uh, trying to be, I guess, more responsible. Um, But I would argue if you're taking away a person's choice to do something that they want to do, then you're just, it's a, it's another implement of control. You're not teaching people to be responsible.
0: And I, we all know that punters like to sing when they're winning, but how do you get much sort of negative feedback after an inevitable losing run?
1: I probably, I, I probably caught more shit on the losing runs than when I get the positive people, people love to, to smack down on you when you're going terrible, but you know what? It's people's money on the line. So I understand I put myself in this position knowing that I was going to cop a hell of a lot of flak back. Um, and it's, it's water off a duck's back at this point. I understand. I, I do take it personally when I am losing bets. Cause like I said earlier, when I was an apprentice and I was trying to get that championship title, I, I do get tunnel vision um, and I do get obsessive about trying to do the right thing. And this is just that new obsession. So when people are going to attack me for a run of losing bets, there's nothing that they can say to me that I haven't said to myself. That's worse.
0: Does the the pressure of the fact that you're, you're having a losing run and you know that people are backing them and they're paying to back them. Does that make it even harder to try and get a winner?
1: Yeah, sometimes it does. And sometimes I might pick something that's probably a little bit short in the market. Some people are like, Oh, I've got to pick a pick an evens horse. It's like, honestly, I just need a winner to get the monkey off my back and, and keep things going. But um it's just it's it's a confidence game and it's going well we're at 12 at the minute and it's it's 12 is the average fluctuate a little bit below that get a little bit above that it's pushing for 14 and then we had a, a couple of bad weeks but uh we're sitting at about 12 now
0: and okay, now, unusually in the world of tipping and a lot of people probably say thank oh, goodness looking at some of the other tipsters you have an only fans page right? now, how, did, how did that happen
1: uh well the only fans came first to be honest um I wanted to do tipping but I was like how do I how do I come at this a little bit differently and all that people know me for us is for horses and I have a large beautiful collection of lingerie that I wanted to share and I like taking photos and I like sharing um, sexy things and that's been a whole long journey for myself as well that came from I guess a, a background of not being confident sexually at all um, and that's actually destroyed past relationships because I was very um, I had a lot of things to work through and I feel like I've come out that other side I'm quite sexually confident now and and happy with who I am I'm, I'm a little bit curvier than what I perhaps would like to be but I also hate the gym so yin and yang um, but I wanted to combine the two and thought why not we'll give it a crack and was amazed at how much that took off. It's obviously a little bit of a gimmick appeal to it as well, which is again, why I chose OnlyFans because I, I knew it would get people talking.
0: But you didn't do it under Libby Hopwood?
1: No, because I wasn't quite ready for it to go completely viral yet. I just wanted to, to dip my toe. I actually started in OnlyFans a few years ago now, and I posted one photo, it was again under an alias. I posted one photo that nobody could see anything. It was just myself and my cello and a really long wig. um, And I chickened out and didn't touch it again for probably a couple of years. And then I came back to it and I started under an alias so I could work out how I really felt about it, how I could work out how I felt about the interactions that I was having on the page. So my partner and I could just sort of settle into it and see how we felt about it and negotiate where we stood on all the different things. Uh, And then somebody in racing found it I don't know how, uh, and blew it up. so um, we were probably ready for it to to come out at that stage, but yeah, I would have preferred to have really taken it viral on my own accord, but yeah,
0: and you mentioned your partner there. he takes the photos i uh, I understand. We
1: had, and- uh, we had a funny interaction with one of our clients I was like, oh how does how does he feel about you doing this? I was like, who, who do you thinks taking the photos? Like I'm not doing this in isolation.
0: I did enjoy the life hack where you can fly to Bali and put it on your tax.
1: Right. So now all my lingerie and all our travel is tax deductible. So top tip, start an OnlyFans, earn a little bit of money, and then you can claim your you can claim your uh, your travel.
0: All right, fine. Well, everything seems to be flying at the moment, Libby, but is there a next in on, on the horizon for you?
1: Uh I really want to knuckle down and really smash these digital content. So I took that little bit of a break. I want to try to ramp the OnlyFans up and ramp up my commitment to the fans on there. I've just started doing voice memos, actually, because I was struggling to keep up with everybody thinks OnlyFans is just posting a few sexy pics and getting paid. It's not that at all. Obviously, there's sexy pics on there, but it's the interaction with the fans and it's hours and hours of messaging and talking to people every day. Um, and I was really struggling to keep up with the volume of content with uh, texting. So I've started sending voice memos, and I'm really enjoying that because i can, I can get through things much faster, but also it's it's quite a bit more personal, and I, I feel like i'm I'm actually talking to people. So hopefully, and the feedback is that they're getting much more out of it too. So I want to up my commitment to my fans, definitely put out more photos. Uh, My photos walk a bit of a line too, because I don't do triple X content and I don't do full nude content, but I do that. I do lewd content. So it's, it's basically implied. I have fully naked photos on there, um, but I've blurred out the, the important bits. So you can't, still can't find one of my nipples on the internet, which I'm a little bit excited about, Um, but trying to walk the line between giving enough exciting, sexy content with, staying true to myself and staying true to what I want to put out there and also giving their fans what they want. And then with the tipping website, I just got home from Bali and I, I redeveloped that website. I've changed the logo, changed the color theme and fixed out some bugs in the, in the website and fixed all that. So that's, I want to ramp that up too, especially coming into spring. I want to start doing content for that. I've got an idea that we're just getting organized for now. I want to do, I am a, uh, I'll keep that under wraps because somebody might beat me to it, but I'm going to be shooting some content for that as well. Uh, And then hopefully that can lead into interviewing people in a podcast such as this and, and things like that, because it's, it's this interaction with people that I love and this is why I love the OnlyFans.
0: Brilliant. Well, people can find you by Googling you. You're active on Twitter pretty much daily. So, Active um, on
1: Twitter, there's a link tree on there as well because OnlyFans is terrible for finding your favorite person. It's it's not a great search engine because they want to give people the right to stay hidden if they want to. Uh, so you pretty much need a link. So if you want to find me across any of those, your best thing is to, to go to Twitter uh, and to go to my link tree or yeah, I'm, I'm very much Googleable. You can Google Libby Tips. If you want to find me on OnlyFans, it is foxy.miss. But like I said, a link tree is probably your best result twitter uh tiktok instagram facebook you name it across all the socials
0: brilliant well i really do appreciate your time libby thank you very much indeed it's been a pleasure talking to you nice to thank you it. very much thank you